I feel like I'm playing a different game now. I feel like at the time I was playing the lifestyle design game, which is where you try and get a certain amount of money either per month or just in the bank as passive as possible. And then you make your lifestyle as brilliant as possible. So you do all the stuff that you want to do on a day-to-day basis. What I realized is that that dream lifestyle is a step on the ladder, but it's not the entire ladder. So I think once you take the money out of the equation, once that's just sorted, you've got enough money to not have to work for a long time, maybe forever, you have the time and you do live the life of your dreams, then you can kind of see what's next. So I feel like I've moved from the lifestyle game to the seeing what I'm capable of game, which is very fun. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. This is the Tropical MBA Podcast, live from the boardroom. Actually, we are doing team stuff. Some of the teams watching us do this. I have performance anxiety right now. I, I I'm having trouble holding the mic. We're in a boardroom. The table is long. There is a whiteboard, but I can still see my bare toes. So we have not <laughs> strayed too far from where we came from. We've been doing some team building stuff, as they say, in the industry. On Friday, Mad Singers dropped by our team call to give a DISC assessment which is where everyone on the team ends up being a D, an I, an S, or a C. And the best part about it was like guessing what everybody is and just having another way to talk about the team. You're laughing. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I was like, you started to, everybody's a D, an I, and like, I was like imagining what the other two letters were going to be, you know? (laughs) You can imagine those for yourself. And... uh, (laughs) Anyways, yeah, it was a good time. So you're all the letters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, the best part was is Ian was a DC. He's like, I'm DC. <laughs> I said it right away. I was like, I'm on brand. The other thing that I did during that assessment was uh, that I thought was fun and that you can do before you take one of these assessments too is I wrote down what I thought everyone was too. And then I got all but one right. So that just totally affirmed that I'm a D and like, Got to yeah. be in charge and like, I know what's going on. The setup. And also a C, like <laughs> I'm intuitive, you know. So. I got it right. I got everyone right and everybody knows it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> one of the conceits or one of the parts of the exercise is you have to like flip off your microphone and mute yourself and let everybody talk about you, right? And one of the traits of a D is that you interrupt. Our CTO, Simon Payne, couldn't have mute on for more than five seconds before he unmutes He's back in the conversation, interrupting everybody, ensuring the D profile and letting everybody know precisely who he is. Nice job, Simon Payne. It was really great, Dan. I think whether or not like you subscribe to like these types of assessment tools, like I thought the coolest part about it was number one, it broke our basic routine on Fridays. And I think we have a pretty good Friday call, but it like broke that routine which was nice because we're not in person. So it's like, I think it's relatively hard to break a routine, like a remote routine. So we did this and like, I think everybody got to know each other a little bit better. Everybody, I learned something about everybody on our team that I didn't know. Yeah. Even though I've met many of these people in person. The other thing too, that I think that this test uh, revealed to me, we have one team member on the call that I've never met in person. And it really showed how difficult it was to know somebody actually 
even though I talk to this person all the time on Google Meet and like see them all the time and email and whatnot, it's really hard to know people if you haven't actually like met as them. a full human. Exactly. But like, I think it's really important to meet people in person. Yeah. Yeah. File disk under step away and shake it up. It's something I think about when you get the team together. Also, in your sort of career, when you go to an event, we were talking today about DCBKK is only a couple months away. And it's one of those things where you sort of, it's either heads down or heads up. And sort of the disc phone call and the exercises we do here in the boardroom are sort of a heads up. Hey, let's step away from reporting on your scoreboard and scorecard this week. Let's step away and just shake it up. You know, one of the ways we did that today, a whiteboard, one of my favorite tools in business. And instead of starting with the outcomes we want and sort of putting KPIs attached to it, seeing our coaching stuff, flip it and reverse it. I know you like that song. You start with principles. You Let start me work with, it. Is you that start, the next word? You start the next with phrase? The, you start with good out. We play that. You play that on the room, in the boardroom. And then you write down, you know, principles, sort of outcomes that would be great in the marketplace, best client outcomes. And then you ask yourselves who or what in the world embodies those things. You can start to see like potential North Star metrics or targets in those behaviors. And then bam, you can work towards your KPI towards the end of the session. It's kind of just interesting just to reflect, think from first principles. Anyway, I like this kind of stuff. In fact, I've been, the reason I mention it, it's something that we've been working on for a future episode, which is what are great exercises to expand, what do you say, the consciousness, the level of vibration? What do people say nowadays? What do you, what Depends are Depends on your drum circle. What are, what are great exercises to do with your team that bonds you together around a, a mission? And that helps you all to think bigger as a group. That's what these two sessions were about. That's what sitting here in the boardroom's about today. And yeah, file it under, step away, shake it up, think a little bit bigger. The grindstone's always waiting for you. So many times in our business is the case in the boardroom that we're in and trips that we've gone on and like things that we've done together as like a team. Those are like turning points for things that are to come in the business. Oftentimes we reference like, remember last year in Barcelona when we were sitting in this very office and like we made this decision? Yeah. Most of those decisions, if I'm remembering correctly, and this is survivor's bias, like happened in person. Yeah, you were like, we're going to drop it and reverse it. And I was like, I'm willing to work it. <laughs> I mean, a couple of them happened on my patio recently <laughs> in the last three years. A couple of them happened in the boardroom. So... In-person, still underrated, I'd say, for remote teams. Speaking of in-person and speaking of events, today's guest, Ian, actually came from a flight that I got onto London. It was a deeply inspiring event. I met a deeply inspiring person who's been on the show previous after she sold her agency. And I said, you got to come back. She has amazing early traction on a new AI startup. And I wanted her to tell the story here today. What do you say we jump into it? The last time we spoke... She had just exited her agency, and in that sort of interim to her next thing, she wrote a book about it called The 10-Year Career, which you can check out. Now she's working on something very exciting. It's called CoachVox.ai. One of the biggest questions we've gotten uh, here at the pod is, what can we do with AI? And today's guest, Jody Cook, took that challenge head on and freaking did something with it and also shares the method that she took to do it, which... I'll just frame up as she took the who over the how method. 
And it's really interesting if you're not a technical person, if you're not already into AI, you focus on the who's rather than the hows. That's what Jody did. She'll describe some of that today. She also talks about building user manuals for your team, talking about different ways to think about teamwork. And get this, Ian, leveraging travel to be more healthy. Sounds like something you would try and sell me on. Today's guest did just that. (laughs) (laughs) It was a wonderful conversation with Jody Cook. We're going to roll it and we're going to roll it now. I am Jodie Cook. I am founder of CoachVox AI. And at the moment, I am in London, United Kingdom. When we spoke 18 months ago, you weren't building CoachVox.ai. What happened? Everything happened. Yeah, we spoke <laughs> 18 months ago. So I just sold my agency. I'd had six months in lockdown, figuring out life. And How much do you sell it for? Yeah, funny. so I've talked quite a lot about using humor to maintain boundaries (laughs) and when someone asks you any question you just don't have to answer it and a lot of the time you can just answer with something funny which means you can move the conversation on so when someone asks a question like that sometimes I say do you know what I would have given it away (laughs) and sometimes I say oh my god so much but let's talk about you so that's what we'll do this time I know you don't want to talk numbers but from a value perspective, like how you thought of it, was it like time to move on money or is it like I'm going to retire money or like, could you describe it in that way? How I think about this is I feel like I'm playing a different game now. I feel like at the time I was playing the lifestyle design game, which is where you try and get a certain amount of money either per month or just in the bank in investments as passive as possible. And then you make your lifestyle as brilliant as possible. So you do all the stuff that you want to do on a day-to-day basis. What I realized is that that dream lifestyle is a step on the ladder, but it's not the entire ladder. So I think once you take the money out of the equation, once that's just sorted, you've got enough money to not have to work for a long time, maybe forever. And once you have the time and you do live the life of your dreams, then you can kind of see what's next. So I feel like I've moved from the lifestyle game to the seeing what I'm capable of game, which is very fun. What's the basic of the lifestyle game? That's fascinating to me. Everybody has their own unique idea. What was it for you at the time? Everything comes down to day to day. So every morning I want to wake up and go, am I really happy that I get to live this day? And if you can make your whole life so that the answer to that question every single morning can be yes, then I think you've won the lifestyle game. And then you get to choose. Then you get to choose, do I just want to do this forever? Do I want to just maintain this level of income per month so that this is my life all the time? Because that's a freaking good way to live. Or is it like, okay, tick, done this. Know that I've got this as a base level. Now I want to see, now I want to push myself. Now I want to take this comfort zone that I'm now living within. And let's face it, many of us do have that comfort zone when we get to the lifestyle stage and then try and push it a bit more and try and just do more. I think that's an interesting tension where I was struck at a conversation at DCX London recently where I've known a gentleman for 10 years and he sort of was just like, you know, had been doing similar things for 10 years and he was basically just like, I don't care to grow my business. I'm not here for that. And I don't know why it struck me like, because I sort of understand that a lot of people are in that moment, but to hear him say it without any shame, just straightforward. I was like, that's cool. And that I don't think that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. And, but then on the other side, a lot of people say things like more, 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 
Like it's like this evil thing. Tell me about how you process that dichotomy. I like the idea that everyone can choose because I think that's, that's why we're all friends, especially in the DC, because everyone's got just their way of living and everyone's different and that's cool. It's like, you do you, I'll do me. And if you, if that's what you want to achieve and that's what you want to do, that's totally cool. I think I thought that's what I wanted. And then when selling and when just being like, okay, I'm just going to write and train and travel and do that kind of stuff. That's when I quite quickly realized you don't just stop being an entrepreneur when you sell your business. You've still got all that stuff going around your head, like ideas and wanting to progress and wanting to make sales. So then when you don't have an outlet for that, you can either love it and you can be like, thank God I don't have to do that anymore. Or you can be like, okay, let's find the new game. And I definitely was geared towards finding the new game with this whole, I guess I've got a bigger safety net, which means you can take bigger risks. I remember you gave a, a wonderful talk at DC Mexico a few years ago and we were hanging out afterwards and you were describing to me the plans for a platform for coaches that was SMS based. And it was really interesting and you were like signing up coaches and it was like this big swing. And I was like, Shit, Jody is starting a startup. That's dope. <laughs> but now when I look at coachvox.ai, it's so much different. I want to hear about some of that transition. What happened? What worked? What didn't? Can you bring me back to that moment, what you were launching and how it evolved? Yes. So when we last spoke, I was starting coachbox.com and that was a platform for business coaching by voice note. And so that was, it was picking up traction slowly. So people were signing up, but they weren't really thrilled about doing so. It was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll join your platform. Yeah, maybe I could do that. It was, that was the thing. And so we got um, quite a few, we got about 60 coaches on board and they were getting clients. It was kind of running, but you know, when you're just like, something is not right. Something's not quite where it's going to be in the future. And I could tell this because I was on podcasts and people would ask me what my next step was. And I wasn't really telling them. I was just being a bit shady. And if I ever logged onto LinkedIn, they'd be like, update your current experience. And I'd be like, not now. And I just shut the browser and just ignore it and not really talk to anyone about it. And I think that was the difference between having a business that you're so behind that you've got this, I kind of call it founder energy. You know, when everything's aligned, you can't wait to tell people about it. You're like, go, go, go. And what I had then, which wasn't that. So something, there was something deep down where I just knew it wasn't right yet. Was it the... I'm trying to graft into that feeling. Was it part of that feeling that you couldn't control the growth? I think part of it was having such a great exit and then feeling a bit like what I do next has to be really good and then not feeling like I had it. You know how like the guy who wrote The Lean Startup, Eric Rise, can't start a startup because... <laughs> That's good. Because <laughs> he can't, can he? He can't. Of course he can't, because it has to do big. And when you hear about someone, I've got a friend, he um he sold his business for about $70 million. And now he's like, what the hell do I do next? Because he was only like 24 when he sold it. So if anything, he should have been older when he sold it, because then you feel less of the pressure. But now he's just like, well, I've had a eight-figure exit. Now I need a nine-figure exit. And there's that sort of pressure to keep going up. And I'm fine with that pressure. But there was definitely something deep down that that knew that um that, that wasn't the exact platform. What are some of the details that happened that allowed you to, I don't know, go back to LinkedIn with a clean heart? What were some of those changes you made? <laughs> a clean heart. So um, 
One of the things that happened was within the coachbox.com platform, we always had this idea that we were going to involve artificial intelligence at some point in the future. So we had this idea around sort of around AI coaching, but it was more AI assisted coaching where a coach could get assisted by artificial intelligence to do a better job for their clients in all these different ways. And I remember when um, it was the end of November, my friend Richard messaged me and said, have you seen OpenAI's new thing? And I was like, no. And he sent me a link and it was really early in the morning. I was in New Zealand at the time. And I remember that whole day I didn't get dressed and I didn't eat anything because I was just playing with ChatGPT, just being like, oh my God, like, what is this? <laughs> what was it about it that struck you specifically? Just how quickly you could create things. So I was typing in things like, okay, write me an article on this or write me. I think I pretty much wrote a book on entrepreneur psychology because I was just messing around with it, seeing what it could come up with and being like, here's the structure and here's the, you know, here's the different paragraphs and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, all these plans that we've got for this future of something to do with AI coaching, I feel like, I don't know how yet, but this is the tool that can help us do it faster and doing it in a better way. So at the time as well, I was competing in the powerlifting Commonwealth in New Zealand. But any time that I wasn't lifting, I was just like researching and learning more stuff and talking to ChatGPT and just trying to figure out what was going on. So you're a founder who's got a platform. How many coaches did you have at the dot-com at that moment? And the business model was what? We had about 60 coaches. The business model was that coaches would sign up and then they would onboard their clients. And that was, I guess, another problem because it wasn't a SaaS. It was like a marketplace. And that's very different. And you would make money how? Based on commission, based on 10% of what? they charge their clients who they service through our platform. So it would be like, I could be a business coach where I help people build a better podcast and I would charge my clients, say, 30 bucks a month and they would text me a certain amount of texts. And they would send you a certain number of voice notes and you would voice note them back and you would go back and forth. Okay. So you've got 60 coaches on this dot com. You're on ice in New Zealand playing with chat GPT. What's your next move? It seems intimidating to go down the AI route. I mean, I don't think you're a developer, right? So what was, how did you think through, like, how are you going to make these changes? I'm not a developer, but how I kind of conceptualize it is, have you ever heard of the wartime CEO and the peacetime CEO? No. So there's this theory that says a wartime CEO is like, they do their best in war or like in times when it's like, Things are hard, things, like metrics are going down, there's all this competition, there's things going wrong and they just come into their own because they can just rally a team and they can inspire people and they can do all this stuff. And then a peacetime CEO is quite different. They like things to be settled. They want to make things settled. They like just, you know, looking after a steady ship. I feel like I'm a kind of change CEO. I just really like going through change. And the reason why you and I spoke last time on the podcast was because we'd had coronavirus and we'd... My agency at the time had shrunk by a quarter in a week, but then we'd grown back to normal and another 25, 20%. And it's because it's like that change is so exciting because it feels like it completely levels the playing field. People go, oh my God, I can't handle this. And they go and give up. And then you've got other people who are like, no, I can use this. And that's the question. It's like, how can I use this? So I definitely I applied that in COVID. And I feel like that's what the question that was going through my head when I got introduced to my first large language model. It's interesting perspective. Like it's almost calming to hear you talk about it because it's like it's easier if things are changing. 
that's another way to say what you just said, like from one perspective. Yes. I think that things can be so boring without change. Like you remember, remember both of us at the start of 2020, we were like, oh, life's pretty good. I've got all these events in the diary. (laughs) I've got all this travel in the diary. Like I was coming, I came back from a trip to Miami feeling like pretty smug about the year. And I guess you did too. (laughs) And then everything changed. But now like I'm so grateful it did. And you are probably too. And that's because it's like, you have to ask that question, how can I use this? And then you used it. So the concept was, what if we change from 60 coaches to 60 AIs or 6,000 AIs? So the first thing I did before knowing exactly what it would look like is I joined a mastermind of business owners who were interested in AI. And what I thought when I first turned up was that we were going to all be talking about how we could create tools and how we could turn our businesses into AI businesses or how we could kind of buy the .ai domain name, which everyone should do, by the way, and then create an AI version of our business. But what actually happened was what everyone was talking about was very surface level. So it was about creating content. Have you just written down buy the .ai for your business? I wrote down, that's so cool and meta. I wrote down .com versus .ai. Okay, nice. Okay. It's like, what's he writing? We'll circle back to that. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote wrote down, order the roast potatoes for lunch. Yeah, of course. (laughs) That's that's important. But yeah, so in the mastermind, everything was quite surface level because it was all about using the tools, not creating the tools. So creating content, creating images, writing articles. A couple of people were worried that their freelancers were using the tools and they wouldn't be able to tell. And what I realized is there was this massive kind of worry with all the creators that they were worried that other people were using their content without their permission. They were worried that they were going to be obsolete or irrelevant. They were worried that they were going to lose control of their art. And then they were worried that they would fall behind because they weren't using the tools fast enough. And so that opened my eyes even more and made me think the people who are exploring this, there aren't actually that many who are building stuff. They're mainly Mm -hmm. using stuff. So that was a big shift to think about what can we build and how can we solve the problem? Because the ethos behind both platforms is the same. It's helping entrepreneurs getting, get better guidance. It's going on this mission against bad advice and irrelevant advice from people who don't really know. But how can we do it in a way that uses this thing that we've just been presented with? So there are two ways of thinking about this that actually, I think, come from Elon Musk. I think I wrote an article called like How Elon Musk Solves Problems, Four Key Frameworks. So one of them is around first principles. So you go right back to the very basics of what problem are you trying to solve? And so what we're trying to solve is how do we help entrepreneurs succeed faster with guidance and how do we help kind of protect them from bad advice? And then how you think about building that up is like from the ground up rather than with the tools that you already have or the platform that you already have. So for our case, it's like we don't actually need it to be human coaches helping them. We need coaches. We need people helping them. We need them to feel like they're getting the right guidance. But it could be with an AI model that's based on a real person that's still based on this worldview, vision, ethos of this real person who's got the real experience, who's built all this real stuff and who has the content but it doesn't need to be them opposite you talking to you. You can get a lot of benefit from interacting with their content effectively as long as you believe that it's going to be effective. So that's part of the thinking behind going right back to that first principle. And then the second one that he talks about is the platonic ideal. So building the solution in the ideal version of the solution, not within the constraints of the world that we already know. What did you end up doing? 
So what we ended up doing was having this idea that we could build an AI coach based on my content, first of all. So we made effectively a prototype. We made Jodie AI. We uploaded my books, articles, blogs, things that I'd said before, podcast transcripts, things like that. And we made a AI coach based on me who I kind of configured to be a certain style, to have a certain tone, so that when people were talking with it, they would believe that it was me. And then we figured out how we could turn that into a platform that other creators could go, go through to create an AI version of them in the same way. And we mapped out this platform based on just thinking about what a SaaS platform could look like that could do that. And the first version of it looked so janky because it was just created in PowerPoint, not even Figma or anything fancy. And then I just asked around again, tried to speak to people who knew a bit about working in AI, spoke to prompt engineers. One thing that I would definitely recommend to anyone thinking about going down this route is get on Upwork, find someone who's a prompt engineer and just book them for an hour and talk to them about what's possible that you get a good idea because that hour takes you so far, especially if you're not technical. You know what you want the outcome to be. You don't really know the inputs. You just know that stuff's possible, but they'll help you connect the dots. And then we put a team together and then built it. Did it cost a lot of money to build? We were already profitable from the first iteration of the platform. And we took on some investment, like a kind of small friends and family round. And then we built the prototype first just to test it. And we started signing creators up before we actually had the main platform. So the prototype didn't cost very much. You're talking kind of less than 10K, for sure less than 10K, maybe even half. And then we did true startup style, a type form, a stripe form, and saw how many people were interested. And then they were. So that's when we built out the full platform. That's very cool. It sounds like you found product market fit. What does that feel like? What are the early indications that this is going really well? At the moment, the early indications are that we wake up and there are new people signing up. So at the moment, we have 80 founding creators on board and we're opening up 250 more spaces next month. And then after that, then I guess we might open indefinitely, but we might still do it in batches because each batch sells out. And it means that we can really like look after everyone and make, make sure that they're all having a really amazing time before we open the next one. So I guess that's an indication because each day we wake up and there are more people on the wait list and we don't always know where they've come from. It's incredible. Do you have like a wait list to openings ratio that you're targeting? Yeah, I think in my head, it's always double. I just think yeah. I oversubscribe by 2x and then that's kind of worked so far. So I guess we'll just keep doing that and then move it up or down, depending on if we keep selling out or if we don't. Because the idea is that you oversubscribe them without annoying people, because you don't want to have so few spaces that everyone's like, well, I'm never going to get one, because I don't think that's the vibe we want. Although I know that works for some things, like Glastonbury tickets, it'll be so many more waitlist spaces than are available. There's One of my co-authors, actually, I wrote a book called How to Raise Entrepreneurial Kids with a really cool guy called Daniel Priestley, and he he actually wrote the book on this. It's called Oversubscribed. And that's, it goes into okay. a lot of detail and all this kind of stuff. Cool. We'll link up to that. So did you change the business model then to charge the coaches versus the people the coaches were signing up? I'm wondering if that helped alignment at all. Yeah. So um, so now it's $99 a month and creators sign up and they 
upload their content and they create an AI coach that coaches mentors and answers questions just like they would. So yes, wow. they are they are paying for it, but some of them are using it as a lead generation tool. So it's on their website. It's talking to their audience on their behalf. Some of them are using it to add value to existing members. So it's in a membership group. And then a smaller proportion of them, but still some of them are charging for access to it. So I wasn't totally sure that the world was ready to pay for AI coaching. That's interesting. But some of our creators are charging like $10 a month for access to an AI version of them that's helping people based on their content. So there are different business models for them. One of the things that Mark Webster brought up to me last week was how critical this idea of client alignment is. And that when you or your product does a really good job, if the client immediately recognizes that, that's a better business than one where that doesn't happen. And it sounds like even immediately by charging the creators, they've used your product in a way that the initial product wasn't able to really be used. Yeah, it's so different. And it's not even different coachbox.ai.com. It's super different thinking about it agency to SaaS. That's been the biggest mindset shift for me, especially. What does SaaS mean to you and why is that important? So in the agency world, we made a sale and then we had to deliver it. We had to do the work. But in software universe, we made a sale. So when our first person signed <laughs> up, it was like, oh, okay, now we have to go deliver the work. Oh, hang on. <laughs> and the first time it happened, it was like, that's when it hit me. So I feel like the first big win was realizing as long as our product does what it says it does, surprises and delights people, does like make people happy, gives them results, we don't need to actually do any delivery. And that's like mind blowing. It won't, to anyone else who runs an agency, it's like, whoa, you just don't have to spend all this time doing all this client delivery. And especially if you're a business owner, you love the vision and the sales, but you don't want a huge delivery team. It's like, this is how you do it. And I'm probably very late to the party, but oh my God, it's awesome. Why are you waiting to let the next 250 people in? Is it simply a matter of marketing and building demand? Or is there like technical and product challenges that you're facing right now? It's definitely on the product side. It's so exciting right now with what we're creating because we know that we're only scratching the surface of what could be possible with this in the future. Like in the future, our AI coaches are going to be like next level. So for us, it's like working out what's the level that we want to get to before we let more people in. And we feel like there's a bit more we can do. And so having a couple of months before then gives us a lot of time to refine the product, test it out even more, keep talking to the 80 founding creators that we've got on board so far so that when we open the doors, we know that it's a real like proud opening of the doors. And it's, I guess it goes back to the founder energy again. You don't want to open the doors and be selling something that you don't really think is amazing. It's like you want that. No, honestly, you're going to, you're going to really, really love this. And it's just getting to that level where we can really confidently say that. Those first 100 customers, they're sort of like your pioneers. They're in there helping you basically to set the product tone for what the future customers are going to receive. For sure. Yeah. They've been really awesome. And they are a mix of creators from an astrologist to a recruitment coach, to a leadership coach, to a marketing guy, to someone who helps female entrepreneurs make their first million. To the, there's such a wide range of people, but all with their own frameworks and content and things that like they're all doing really different stuff. But every bit of feedback that they come back with is something that then goes on the roadmap. It goes on the discussion. And then we work out how to just get it better all the time. You mentioned you're playing a bigger game. What are the outcomes that you dream of? When we first came up with this business idea, it was all based on this whole 
set of parameters around what would make a really cool business for us both to run. And this is me and my husband, because I'm the kind of outward facing founder and he's like the behind the scenes founder. So your husband is sort of like a COO and you're like the CEO or president. How do you consider that division? Yeah, I guess something like that. If you want to put those American titles onto my... uh... Onto my startup and make it a sound visionary and integrator. <laughs> no, no. I, I'd, I'd say we're both the visionary ones, and then we have the integrator people separately. But yeah, it's more like let's go with outward facing founder and then behind the scenes founder. Because I think even when a company's got two founders, they might not both want the kind of the limelight and the press. I guess you, you and Ian might be similar. You describe like your grazing stuff too. Like you have like this entrepreneurial grazing where like you're reaching out on Upwork and scheduling a little call and you like hopping into a mastermind. That is a lot of what this outward facing executives do is they like poke around and they like find little pieces of quality information and they bring it back to the crew. And then the internal crew is like, how can we make this meeting better? What are we talking about today? This data point isn't quite right. I feel like that's an interesting division as well or a different way to think about it. I think the main difference is what we nerd out on. It helps actually that I'm an ENTJ and he's an INTJ. He likes nerding out on the numbers. He likes looking at keyword trends, looking at different numbers behind different things and putting metrics in place and running experiments. But it's all experiments based on numbers and based on doing things online and doing things behind the scenes and then seeing how that translates to results. Whereas I just nerd out on people. So I'm like, who can I meet? Who can I meet that's running a really cool company who's got this idea and that idea and who can they introduce me to and what else can happen and how can I help them? So we just nerd out on completely different things. So it makes sense that I'm the one that goes and meets people and he's the one that looks after the numbers. Interesting. Yeah. Just as an aside, I think we did like a Myers-Briggs DC nerd out like five years ago and it was like INTJs everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's something like 2% of the population, but 30% of entrepreneurs. It's very over, overrepresented in entrepreneur circles. And also ENTJs and INTJs, they think they're the best. <laughs> so they're really actually quite frustrating sometimes because, because if they're ever Tell trying me about it. if they're ever trying to improve anyone else, it's pretty much they're trying to make vis- make people who aren't visionary more visionary trying to make people who are a bit more sensing, more logical, and trying to make people who don't plan, plan. So every NTJ personality is trying to make people more like them because they believe they're awesome. Classic. I got to dive back into that. That's interesting. We're actually doing the DISC thing with our team, I think, on Friday. The difference between Myers-Briggs and DISC, there's lots of differences. But one of the differences is that you can't always guess what someone's Myers-Briggs is. Like You don't know. You could have someone completely wrong. And then they do the test, they figure it out, and then you know after that. But DISC, and Mads is just exceptional at reading people, but it's because he's just nailed this formula. You can pretty much guess what someone is with DISC, and then you can adapt your actions accordingly, and you can change how you work with them accordingly. So DISC can be more useful when you don't want to say to someone, here, take this test. Do you think it's useful? Because I've asked a bunch of people this, like, what specifically have you done? And it's A lot of people just like it. One of the things that we've done in practice is everyone in our team, and it's a very small team for now, but we've all got user manuals. And the (laughs) user... Sweet. We all are very different people. We all work in very different ways. And so just being able to put your way of working onto paper is so refreshing. So mine is like, 
I'm an ENTJ. This means this. I very direct, like I prize integrity. If you do what you say you'll do at the time you'll do it, great. But if you don't, I'll find it very hard to kind of get my trust back up because I'll just, because integrity is so high. So so it's just stuff like that. And it's like, I communicate really directly. Please do so with me. Like I don't like layers to stuff. So just say what you mean and just little things like that, that will just help someone just understand you. And I read everyone else's in great detail because I love knowing how they want to be communicated with and what it means when they do certain things. And the fact that if you said to someone, you know, are you busy tomorrow? And they just message back to say no. Someone else might go, oh, they're being rude. Oh, what's wrong? What have I done? But really, it's just like, no, they communicate like that. And it's so refreshing to not have to mm. dig deeper into what someone might be thinking. That's interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. One of the things I've kind of noticed is um, just a small thing. I, I have a lot of obviously blind spots, but one of them I suspect is that I really like to critique things. And I, I, th- I can sometimes see like it's exhausting and or insulting to be critiqued, you know? And so I'm wondering if, you know, how to better frame that in the company in certain interactions. In your user manual, it could say that. It could say, I like to critique things. Critiquing things is my love language. If it you, means I like it, you know, or else I would give up on it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but say that because that's so useful for someone to know because then they know, okay, Dan's critiquing my idea. That means he's interested. That means he thinks there's potential, not yeah. Dan hates me and my job is not safe. <laughs> totally, you doubt it. Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. That's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. So let's circle back. We were we started this whole conversation about your kind of the big animating vision as founders. What do you guys dream of? I really love this idea that everyone's got the help that they need whenever they need it to build the business of their dreams. So I think part of that is everyone having access to an AI coach, everyone having this like board of AI coach directors or something that means it that at any given time you can get support. So what that looks like in terms of Coachbox AI, I guess for a start, it just means more creators signing up, creating their AI versions, doing cool stuff with it, testing it out in whole different ways that we didn't even know existed. Like um, the recruitment coach guy is getting people to upload their resumes and then his AI coach is critiquing their resumes. So just all these just mind-blowing different applications for it. I want to go down rabbit holes of those and then see see where that leads really but yeah build it build it big definitely one final piece on that is what is the platform dependency situation look like with ai startups are you paying a bunch of money to open AI? i'm like are there multiple options is it expensive how does that work most ai startups are built on a large language model of sorts and therefore i guess there is a dependency but i actually think the main danger is that an existing big platform clicks its fingers, launches exactly the same functionality, and then your business disappears. So there was a bunch of tools that were transcribing meetings and they were joining Zoom calls and transcribing meetings. And then Zoom just announces a transcribing meetings function. And then all of a sudden, you don't need any of those tools anymore. So that makes sense. I think that's the main danger in the whole thing, not necessarily the dependency on one language model. Excellent. So I'd like to ask you some questions about some other things if you have a few moments. Sure. 
That's a really exciting story. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Coach Fox or how can uh, listeners get in touch and get involved? Yeah, sure. So we're opening a load of new spaces to creators who want to create an AI version of them in the next couple of months. So you can sign up there at coachfox.ai. We are also opening a, another investment round. So if that's your jam, then definitely get in touch and you can do that through the website as well. Exciting. So if you want to play a bigger game with Jody and coachfox.ai, get in touch. Very cool. I want to ask you about some other stuff that I'm very interested in in you. There's this like idea out in like the digital nomad world that traveling is unhealthy. But you seem to flip it all around and say, no way, I'm a change CEO. I'm changing this. This is more healthy to travel. I'm wondering how you got that mindset and what are some ways that you leverage travel to be more healthy? Yes, definitely. So I've just come away from two months at two separate places in Thailand, one in Phuket, one in Koh Samui, where we lived on a training resort. And so what that looked like was... A training resort. You can't just say that. What, what is a training resort? I have never even heard of this. A training resort is like, it's like living in the gym, except the gym isn't just the gym that pops into your head when I say a gym. A gym is like lots of different things that you could do all in different areas of activity. So at the one in Phuket, it was a MMA gym. It's called Bangtao MMA. And it's got boxing. It's got BJJ. It's got CrossFit. It's got like yoga, everything that you could possibly want. And a kind of cool cafe place where you could get all your food. And then we lived in the hotel that was opposite it. I kind of think of it as frictionless living. Okay. So if all you want to do in your life, and this is for me, it's like my profession, my obsession and decompression. My profession is coachfox.ai. Obsession is powerlifting and decompression is like traveling and living and just the beach and that kind of stuff. And so if all you want to do is those three things, you need to work out how to take out everything else. And everything else includes like, I don't know, cleaning, making food, thinking about what to wear, all those stupid decisions that zap away so much of your energy that you just don't need. Living on a training resort is the answer because you're not doing anything other than training and working and everything else is taken care of for you. So it means you can just make much healthier, sustainable decisions. And by the end of that month there, you don't feel like, oh my God, I've overindulged. I've like turned into a big messy slob and I haven't done any work. You feel like, okay, I'm ready to go again. It's exciting. It feels like those sorts of trips have the potential to, to bring, out, bring about breakthroughs in people's lives whether it's physical or professional. Yeah, I think so. A big part of what I do, especially between profession and obsession, is I guard the boundaries between them so hard. So I hmm. never use my phone in the gym ever. Just focus on doing the lifts or doing whatever you're doing. And then it means that when you do get to your laptop, when you're ready to work, you've just got all these ideas and you've got the solutions to problems because your default mode network, like your subconscious mind has been working on them for that whole time. But if we're always just checking notifications, checking things that are going on, your brainwaves never get the chance to get into that level. So they're just always like a hamster looking around for the next dopamine hit. A few things. Do you come into these months with a specific uh, obsession goal in terms of a training block? And do you prioritize that over your profession? Do you prefer to work out after a professional block or before? Usually the obsession has a goal because my year is around the competition calendar because normally I have a national powerlifting competition and then an international powerlifting competition. So you'll do different powerlifting training depending on how close you are to a competition. And then 
the structure of the day is pretty much the same every day. But I just love this idea that you've got this structure where no one needs to say like, oh, what time are we going to the gym today? Oh, what time do you want to do this? What time do you want to do that? You just know. Right. So you even take out the friction of just talking to someone else about what time you're going to do something. <laughs> but I love the idea that it's so sustainable. It's so wonderful that you could do it every single day. And I remember a goal at the very start of when I started a business when I was 22, the goal was how can every day feel like a Saturday? And that's kind of what this is. So the days are the same. It's like, train in the morning, it's get a big chunk of focus work done, it's train again, and then it's do more kind of managerial work. So like meetings or calls or smaller kind of tasks, and then it's hang out in the evenings. I love these topics of like sabbaticals or what you're doing with these months. It feels like being a professional in a different way and also like kind of resisting normalcy and because we want to have outsized outcomes and those that requires different inputs. What kind of costs could people expect if they wanted to imitate what you've done? What are the costs of doing something like this? The costs aren't actually that high. So the Bangtao gym itself, I think might have been about $400 for the month. But the accommodation was crazy cheap. Something like $1,500 for the month for a really amazing big room with a gorgeous view that included breakfast. So Brilliant. it's tiny and then depends where you are in the world as to how much your flights cost. But the expense is not the thing. The main thing is, can you just, can you spare the month? Can you go there and do it? And then how can you put it to good use? Because you could easily not put it to good use. Like if you wanted to just go out every night and if you wanted to just sit on the beach all day, you could. But the point is, yeah. it's a training trip. This is like a trying to do this in such a way that you feel like you could live this month on repeat forever. Because then you win. You are always on holiday. One question for you on that is uh, there was a speech at uh, a lightning talk at DCX London that I thought was fascinating where basically some a digital nomad experience was like polarized. So either go someplace for three months or go someplace for two weeks. Don't go someplace for like one month. Mm. And I'm curious as to like what starts to break down over the month. For me, I kind of get in this like slow travel netherworld where I don't have anything socially to do the mission stuff starts to break down after like three to four weeks or whatever. And like, I don't have like a social scene there or I didn't put the effort into that. So I'm curious as to like, how do you feel about the social aspect of it, I guess? Or do you agree on the timing that it's better to do it for two weeks? Or do you have any opinion about that? I definitely agree with polarized travel. I think that either having two or three days and doing a city break and really doing it properly and being a tourist or doing like one, two, three months is the way to do it. I don't think I've, I don't remember the last time I took a two week trip because it's almost like it's this weird mid ground that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So the social side is interesting because when you're part of a sports community, you feel like you do have that community. And I've, I put something on my Instagram the other day. I was like, did we meet in a gym? And it was a poll to everyone on my Instagram. <laughs> and it was like 65% yes. Because <laughs> that's just, you just meet people there and then you've got that thing in common. And then also there's this really cool community called Dynamite Circle that I'm uh, part yeah. of. And so what I do is that they've got this new feature in the forum, which is where you say where you're going and you see which other people are there at the same time. You. So yeah, that's big. You should check I it out. I had a very exciting product meeting about that product last night with our CTO. Cool. Hopefully it'll be much, much better. All right, Jody, this has been polarized at the top of my range as a podcast interview. Thank you for joining the Tropical MBA podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fantastic. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.